I'm Sophie Frost. This is The Hidden Constellation. For the past year, I've been travelling the length and breadth of England, visiting the museums that make up the Science Museum Group, talking with staff and volunteers about the role of technology in their everyday working lives. We will shortly be arriving at Bradford Interchange. If you are leaving the train here, mind the gap between the train and platform edge. I've been speaking with individuals across the workforce at Science Museum Group to understand the new, hidden, distributed, legacy and collective forms of digital work taking place across this vast and eclectic group of science and technology museums. The Hidden Constellation explores the future of work in museums, presenting the Science Museum Group as a case study of a museum service thinking about the value and impact of technology in the work that it does. In this episode, I'll be looking at new forms of digital labour and digital activity that take place across the group's museums in London, Bradford, Manchester, Shildon, York, as well as at the new National Collection Centre in Rawton, reflecting on how technology is being used to promote the organisation's mission to grow science capital in individuals and society. For the Science Museum Group, taking a science capital-informed approach to their collections and activities means considering the significance of what their audiences know about science, technology, engineering and mathematics, or STEM, how they think about it, what they do, and who they know in shaping their attitudes and relationships towards it. Each of us has a different amount of science capital. It's not fixed and can change across a lifetime. For example, my dad is a physicist and he worked for most of his career at the National Physical Laboratory in southwest London. Along with talking endlessly about maths and science to me as a child, he even made up a rap about gravity, it's called the Gravity Rap, and always having some new experiment on the go, he regularly took me off to the Science Museum to run riot in Launchpad, which I loved. As I got older, I grew rebellious, declaring that I loved art and hated science, and I opted to study all art subjects. I honestly can't tell you why exactly, but what did endure from my dad's science chat was the gift of a curious and questioning mind. Meanwhile, my sister acquired a lifelong passion for science, in no small part because of dad's homemade rockets and self-taught computer programming and copies of new scientists lying around. She is now a successful microbiologist. I digress, but the point I'm making is that Science Museum Group's understanding of science capital similarly maintains that your appetite for science is linked to your exposure to it through your family, your friends, your school and your community in childhood and adulthood. And that informs the way that you think about it. Just to clarify, yes, I realise how lucky I was to have my dad around and no, I don't hate science anymore. In this episode... I'm interested in how new kinds of digital labour are disrupting, reorganising and progressing the organisation's core priority to promote science capital. I want to uncover how is the Science Museum Group using, managing, understanding and creating with technology to increase equity in science education? What does this mean for the importance and value of digital labour around the museum and for the future of museum practice? A quick disclaimer before we go any further. There's going to be quite a lot of talk about infrastructure, workflows, processes, databases and systems in this episode. 
While it's not always easy to get your head around, this information is important for us because it is crucial to better understanding the other hidden, distributed legacy and collective forms of digital labour that we'll consider in later episodes. If you're into this stuff already, great. And if not, I've tried to make it as interesting as possible in what you're about to hear. Staff will shine a light on the foundation stones of new digital activity at Science Museum Group. And this will help inform our analysis of what we'll learn later in this series about the future of museum work. First, let's look at how Science Museum Group uses digital technology. I'm referring here to how particular digital tools, platforms or technologies are used. We heard in the last episode from Dr Laura Humphreys talking about the databases they use for collections management. Our collections database, our main one is Mimsy, but our library and archives is all uh, in AdLib. Um, we also use Koha for the library catalogue. We've got iBase um, for the photographs, which translates into media library. So we do have databases coming out of our ears, and that doesn't count all the spreadsheets that people have of information. <laughs> So we know from Laura that the use of digital technology is crucial to how Science Museum Group corrals all its data on collections into a manageable entity. Now let's hear from John Stack, Director of Digital, talking about the distinctive ways that science museums use digital in their activities and outputs. Okay, so coming here to a science museum, one of the things that really appealed was it felt like you had a really different kind of challenge here. So what you'll see here is similar short texts, but probably more text in the museum here. Mm-hmm. In, if you look at the newer galleries like Mathematics, Information Age, yeah. um, Medicine, some, you'll get media, so video and film, much more integrated with the objects, so often right next to the objects, um, and a lot more of it. And you'll get interactive exhibits, which could be physical, but actually are mostly digital, hybrid physical digital. Um, It's been a real specialism in the museum going back like decades, which are of all different kinds, touch tables, things that you can do Morse code on and then see it play down the screen, etc. All kinds of things that are really trying to sort of tell the stories of the objects and their impacts in the world. Yeah. which is like almost like one step removed from the object themselves. You're trying mm-hmm. to tell a wider story about mm-hmm. technology, science, medicine, transport, and its impact in the modern world. Mm-hmm. And that feels like something that digital actually does really well. So that was a really interesting challenge to come in and do. And so one, a lot of the content that we're putting online is trying to do a similar kind of thing online, but in a different context. And there's many more things 425,000 things, many of which have never been on been on display and therefore haven't had the benefit of really detailed cataloguing. Um, and there isn't this long-established tradition of how do you write a text mm-hmm. online about the object. Mm. Um, and so we've been working through that in the last couple of years. What does it mean to write a short description online? We've had, we've had to, all, for a science technology direction, we've almost have to, had to think through establishing what that looks like in the last couple of years. It didn't really exist here when I got here. And then when you put the, let's call it editorial content around that collection online, which could be uh, story type articles, Mm -hmm. or it could be videos and so on. Some of them are tied to individual objects 
but those tend to be the really famous objects. So it's Stevenson's rocket, Mallard, the Soyuz descent module that Tim Peake came mm-hmm. back from the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. These are like big, famous things that you can put content around, but most of the objects are not like that. Most of the objects, when you put them online, what they need is a very similar approach to what you do in the gallery, which is you put objects together. A mobile phone is interesting, but what it doesn't do is... you need, If you want to tell the story of telephones and how they've changed the world, you actually want multiple telephones that tell the story of time. And therefore, when you present it online, you're probably not writing lots of catalogue texts and thinking people will make their way through our, our online collection mm. and discover stuff. You need to package things up for them more, which is why a lot of our content efforts have gone into kind of story-type content online that, that is similar in its editorial outlook to the gallery. John is suggesting here that through using the internet to put collections online, Science Museum Group can enable greater access for many more people to its science and technology collections. This has been proven. In 2020, their website had 7.6 million visits, while their apps and games achieved 210,000 downloads and its YouTube channel had 2.3 million video plays. Later in this series, we'll be touching on the digital labour involved in the group's relationships with large tech partners such as Wikipedia, Google Arts and Culture and BBC Bite Size. As it stands, the estimated online presence of the organisation reaches 84 million users annually, which is over 20 times the number of annual visitors to the museums within the group. For John, the future of the museum is in digital content development. And so actually the collection, the stories and the YouTube, so the three biggest ones, which together make up three quarters of it, are the three areas that we should focus on most strongly going forward as a digital content strategy. So actually we're already kind of doing the... We're already focusing in the three areas, which McKinsey is saying, these are your growth areas. John is referring here to recent pro bono analysis undertaken by consultants McKinsey and Company, exploring the possibilities for greater online impact at Science Museum Group. The report recommended the provision of more recreational STEM online-first content, which would specifically help with driving growth in science capital through unstructured learning. According to the report, and I quote, This direct-to-consumer space of narrative-based content in online-first, video-based formats deployed through editorialised channels optimised for online discovery offers potential for an audience reach many times Science Museum Group's current footprint. Whereas Science Museum and Technology Museums, Transport, Medicine, these are things which aren't hugely... They don't tend to be doing these kinds of very sophisticated content programmes. So there's a big opportunity there, but there's a, there's a lot of other competition. Yeah. There's, uh, there are individual YouTubers who are making great YouTube videos. I mean, Tom Scott and mm-hmm. people like that who are making great, engaging mm-hmm. content. There's NASA, the World Wildlife Fund, etc., etc., mm-hmm. making all this. So that, that's your competition. So the context is really different, the audience needs really different, and the competition is really different as well.
something many cultural and heritage organisations have struggled to get up to speed with, especially since the pandemic, are the new ways that audiences are accessing and consuming cultural content through online streaming, which has fundamentally altered the nature of demand for engaging informal educational content. David Arditi, author of Streaming Culture, describes the process thus. The cultural practice of streaming changes the cultural practice of consuming cultural content. In the early days of television, neighbours would gather to watch television programming. Then, as every home in a neighbourhood owned at least one television, people quit going to other people's homes to watch TV. The idyllic form of watching TV became family time. But eventually, each household owned multiple TV sets, which cut down on TV time as family time. Streaming changes those practices further, as every screen, TV, phone, tablet or computer becomes a site of TV, film or video watching. Now, a family can be gathered in one room, with mum watching a broadcast show on the living room television, a daughter using a tablet to watch someone play Fortnite on Twitch, and a son watching TikTok clips on his phone. We went from collective TV watching to individualised watching, structured watching to anarchic watching. What's crucial in this shift in how we are using technology to consume cultural content is how it has altered in creative, disruptive ways what our cultural content is, or in Arditi's understanding, the meaning that people bring to cultural texts. The rise of online streaming and the global far-reaching possibilities it offers has led to a shift in the very nature of culture itself. Here's Arditi. Communities arise out of the consumption of this cultural content. Everyone accessing different content in the same room allows people to construct their own communities. What are the implications of anarchic watching for the Science Museum group and how they wish to engage and entertain their audiences whilst promoting science capital? And what does this mean for the kinds of digital labour required by the museum? The staff and volunteers you'll hear from in this series will help us find answers. But in terms of how Science Museum Group is using digital, a picture is emerging of a leading museum using technology in ways that respond to shifts in audience appetite for informal STEM content. Just as with online content, Mark Cutmore, Head of Commercial Experiences, explains a similar aspiration in the group's approach to providing immersive in-person experiences. You can use digital technologies to communicate to people in ways that matter to them. And, and, and you know, as we walked through Wonder Lab earlier on, different people interact and, and absorb information and appreciate things in different ways. And so I think it's important to have a, a, a variety and a diversity of, of delivery methods um, to give people information, experiences, educate and entertain them. And so that's where you want to employ different digital technologies. It might be a large screen IMAX with 3D glasses. It might be a VR headset. It might be a simulator that's throwing you around and moving around an image. Or it might be uh, an interactive exhibit in Wonderlab where you get to use tactile sensations to experience something that's powered by a digital piece of technology that you're, you're physically interacting with that. They're all different ways that, that can affect people in different ways and, and affect different people in, in, in powerful ways. This brings me to reflect next on how Science Museum Group manages digital to achieve their goal of increasing science capital. 
The kinds of work involved in this were frequently explained to me as the unsexy parts of digital work at the group. That said, I think their mass digitisation initiative, known as One Collection, provides us with a model exemplar of the very real value of digital labour in museums and its role as the vital substructure supporting the central superstructure of a museum service the size of Science Museum Group. Many people describe the long and arduous process of inventorying, cataloguing and digitising involved in the collections move from Blythe House in London to a new store at the former RAF base at Rawton, Wiltshire, now known as the National Collection Centre, even during the pandemic. I heard a lot about hazards and hazard checking and lots about barcoding technology. Words like reusability and discoverability were bandied around a lot. Using the move as a catalyst, the One Collection project has cemented efforts to better integrate digital within the whole makeup of the museum group. Here's Jack Kirby, Associate Director of Collection Services, discussing the origins of the project. So in 2015, slightly out of the blue, I was asked to do a strategy for the Science Museum Group's collection services, as we now term them, because we had been doing the management of the collections and the care of the collections museum by museum Mm. in our family of five museums, rather than with any kind of coordination. And as we started to work more together as a group of museums that meant lots of inconsistent processes were rubbing up against each other and we weren't really getting the benefits of the scale of the group but while I was doing the strategy what I'd noticed was that even though I had last been doing that kind of documentation work in 2001 or 2 it hadn't really changed. You still have people walking down the stores with clipboards, going and typing stuff into databases later. It wasn't digitally enabled. Mm. And it seemed to me absolutely um, ridiculous that you had people using increasingly handheld technology in every aspect of their lives, except in their museum work. So the, the idea was that if we invest in the behind-the-scenes technology, we can make more efficient and accurate, actually, some of these quite basic museum processes. And by creating that efficiency, we can then get more online, because if it isn't online in 2021, who's going to use it? This aspiration to move the collections online whilst also digitising them hasn't just been specific to Science Museum Group. It's part of a broader movement following the government-backed review in 2017 of museums in England by Neil Mendoza, known as the Mendoza Review, towards dynamic data for dynamic collections. Science Museum Group's One Collection initiative is a substantial example of what Mendoza refers to when he says that, and I quote, digitisation offers the opportunity to look at metadata in new ways. We'll also see this in the case of their recent Heritage Connector project, which will be explained in more detail later, as an example of how the group creates with digital. Here's John talking about how he incorporated his ambitions for digital content creation within the agenda of the collection's move. I remember I once had a conversation in the lift with my then boss just at the beginning of the One Collection project when we were talking about uh, moving all the objects from Blythe House and, and photographing them and doing a kind of suite of digital engagement things around them. 
and you know we talked about all different kinds of things that could be involved in there and I said uh, you know it was taking time to kind of shape the thing up and work out where we were going to balance out resources and what was important and what wasn't important and then next I said to him look there's like there's a couple of ways we can go here I can build you a really shiny digital thing which will get a great press release mm -hmm. and you know what it might even win an award or we can do so, we can do the thing here with our collection where in 10 years time the people who come into our jobs look at say look at what they did 10 years ago as part of that project it's amazing we're still building on top of it now and I said I think we should do the second one. I just need us to be really clear that that's what we're focusing on, not the first one. Maybe we'll get a bit of the first one, but we're really talking about long-term mm -hmm. change and foundational work here. And he said, yes, that's what we're doing. <laughs> Fortunately. As I was undertaking research for the Hidden Constellation, I was struck on many occasions by the sense of responsibility for future generations of museum workers wrapped up within initiatives such as One Collection. As John mentions, long-term change and foundational work are at the heart of all the projects involving digital technology. Here's Jack, followed by John again. Because it's about um, leaving a digital legacy that's quite healthy. Um, you know, the, the first, uh, the millennial digital projects all produced websites that are often now not online and a lot of that content isn't online mm. and what people want from websites changes over time so to some extent that's fine we've repurposed a lot of that content anyway but if you photograph the stuff and made it available on your online collection anyway and if you've done that at such a high resolution original that you could in the future get more high res derivatives from it because you know, even now we can press from a 50 megabyte TIFF to a JPEG of a few megabytes max for online. Mm. But in 10 years' time, you might, you might actually be able to access the TIFF directly or a bigger derivative. Yeah. So it's also trying to future-proof it, not just capture at mobile phone resolution today, mm. but to capture at such a size that you shouldn't need to be photographed it for 20, 30, 40 years. Mm. There's also this tricky balance between doing things that you know are going to be really beneficial in the future. They're really long-term, deep, systemic changes that are going to be there for a long time. I think it's really important to recognise those yeah. versus the things that feel like fun projects for now that are going to be great and we're all going to enjoy working on them and they're going to feel like they push things forward. But they might not last, but they might go into a, a, like a long history of... We'll learn from those and that goes into the next thing. Our assumption was, going through Blythe House and moving it to the National Collection Centre was, mostly things would be individual things. But enormous numbers of them have been, it's, it's the computer, it's the keyboard, the mouse, the hard drive, right. the yeah. manual. And we catalogued them all individually because they're all individual things and we need a reference for them and all that stuff. But when we present them online, we kind of want to present them both as individual things, six things, let's say, but also as a kind of coherent whole. Mm -hmm. And we don't currently have a good way of doing that, either cataloguing them that way or presenting them online that way. So it's quite a, it's a really interesting and exciting project because no, there's no good example online for a museum 
archives are quite good at this stuff, but for a museum to present objects that way, and once you dig into it, it's a really knotty issue because when you, when you type in a search, I want to see all the computer mice, and that, that's a component part. Or it might be that, that one component is the particularly significant bit and you want that to be in the search results, blah, blah, blah. So it's a really difficult challenge and it needs collection management head around it, it needs curatorial, it needs digital to think about how we present that online. So it's a big piece of work that really gets into the fundamentals of collection management and data models and how the website works and stuff. And so on the one level, we need to get on with it and do it. But like, I and others have raised a number of times in meetings where it, people have said this feels like this is going slowly or we're making a meal of this or whatever is, is uh, whatever we decide now, we probably won't change for decades. We must get it right this time <laughs> because there's a pace, the collection, the pace of change of looking at this kind of these kinds of questions is one of these like decades long questions where in the future someone will come back to it and the decisions we make now really have like I won't be here but we want someone in the future again yeah. we want someone in the future to look back at it and say oh look at that they did that that's so nice do you know what I mean <laughs> What we see through one collection is the gestation of an internal museum practice centred by digital activity, which promotes the use of technology so that deeper, closer looking at objects is possible. In seeking to tackle a generational issue rather than a short-term one, one collection has surfaced a new kind of long-term infrastructure which places emphasis on the importance of digital storytelling – one that manages technology to make better connections across Science Museum Group's collections to serve a much broader audience. This was brilliantly explained to me by Jessica Bradford, the first keeper of collections engagement. So the role was created as part of our broader strategic initiative around making our collections more accessible. Both in person, we're doing a huge amount of work at uh, the National Collection Centre, which is just outside of Swindon, to um, rehouse our collections and make them more physically accessible in new facilities. And as part of that major collection move, we've been digitising over 300,000 objects. And we know that simply digitising those objects, making them available online, isn't enough in terms of engaging people with them. So my role is really about finding ways to turn that data into stories that connect with people. For Jessica... Digitisation through one collection has enabled huge, new, dynamic opportunities for digital engagement. And, crucially, these are opportunities which represent and prioritise the agency and autonomy of the individual visiting the museum online. It's been clear to me that whilst the Science Museum and Science Museum Group more broadly have always been really at the forefront of um, thinking digitally in terms of audience engagement um, and that stems right back to um, the children's gallery and um, interactivity as a way of bringing science to life and the role of the museum in bringing digital technologies to audiences as a way of explaining how the world is changing and um, I think particularly as a science museum we've always had that role 
Um, but what I've seen that's different is the use of digital technologies um, and the importance of digital collections to expand and broaden our audiences, so, so to share our collections more broadly with more people um, and essentially to create um, a world in which as well as um, telling our own stories and curating our collections, we are opening that out to people to find their own connections and I, I think the the biggest opportunity we have with um, the mass digitization project that I'm working on is that we we're essentially creating literally millions of different opportunities for people with different personalities and interests and backgrounds to approach our collections in different ways and bring their own interpretations. What is particularly inspiring here for me is that we begin to understand one collection as part of a major, if subtle, realignment of the work of the museum group as custodians of vast science, technology, engineering and maths collections with their role as storytellers, as purveyors of science capital on a mass scale through the strategic management of digital methods and processes. The project itself is fundamentally about access and engagement. It's it's about using the opportunity of the move, the fact that in order to move a collection, every one of those objects has to be handled by a human being. And before those objects are put in a box, let's photograph them. And whilst we're photographing them, let's ask ourselves, do we know what this is? And do we know what it means to us and why we have it and what stories it might tell? So in that sense, one collection is a move but it's not about the move it's a lot more than that um, and I think we're, we're really fortunate that the organisation appreciated that we had this once in a generation opportunity while all of those objects were being looked at and, and literally handled for the first time in generations um, to take stock and to not only better understand the collections ourselves but share that understanding more broadly in lots of ways it's a lot easier to get your head around the scale of the collection obviously in a physical building because as a human being we can we judge the scale of something by you know, in comparison to our own bodies and we can see the meters upon meters upon meters of racking and um, we can get a sense of objects stretching into the horizon in the digital sphere it's much harder to give people a sense of what we've got and the edges of what we've got and people are also approaching the collections in a completely different way you don't have that same sense of walking into the warehouse because most of the time what you're walking into is your search result so most people aren't encountering a mass of anything most people don't browse our online collection they use google to search for a particular term um, the name of an object, rarely, most often the name of a person or an event or a thing that they know about, the invention of penicillin, whatever it might be. So actually their, um, their vision is so narrowly honed at the point of entry into our collection. It's almost like the reverse experience of walking into that enormous building at the National Collection Centre and being hit by mm. the sort of tsunami of, um, of objects and, and stories. So I think that's... That's one of our biggest challenges, really, is to sort of get people as quickly as we can to the object they want to find, but then encourage them to look out a bit, reach out and, and explore and find connections between that object and other things that we might have in the collection that they don't know exist. And I think that 
that question of um, whether or not um, people can discover stories and objects through our online collection is something we're trying to tackle through the One Collection project. Um, we are looking at different ways that we can help people um, who wouldn't know what to put in that search box and who would be intimidated by the empty search box looking for ways to help them understand um, the kinds of stories we can tell and the sorts of objects that we hold um, and that's one of the reasons why we um, tell stories and that's another reason why we make videos and podcasts and um, and that we you know, use social media to connect objects in our collection to something that might be happening on the news or elsewhere in the world. There are quite a few things going on here that I didn't expect. Through the One Collection project and the kinds of digital engagement that it has made possible, we are seeing a move of the dial in terms of Science Museum Group's ability to promote science capital. And while the concept of science capital is being morphed and pushed, at the same time One Collection has propelled internal shifts in how the organisation communicates and collaborates, as well as impacting how digital is articulated at an organisational level. In other words, the One Collection project has affected the way digital literacy is growing amongst staff and volunteers at Science Museum Group, and is becoming increasingly connected with the organisation's value as a proselytiser of STEM heritage. One of the main successes so far of that project, which is um, to an extent dissolving boundaries, quite artificial boundaries that existed between what we call in this particular organisation collections and collection services. So collections being the people, mainly curatorial, but also research, libraries and archives, who um, are essentially responsible for the sort of intellectual life of the objects Mm -hmm. and... um, collection services who are responsible for um, their care and um, efficient management. Those teams haven't always worked closely together and in fact on a gallery project they often feel very very separate. On one collection they're literally in the same space and they're working together um, through different governance structures um, and different ways of working to um, ultimately for the same aim which is to make those objects available online. Um, and I think what we hope to see, not just continuing on one collection, but in gallery and exhibition projects in the future, is a, a recognition that that foundational work with the collection at the beginning of any project is the ultimate legacy of any you know, galleries, even galleries with a 25-year lifespan, will ultimately come and go exhibitions are arguably a flash in the pan whereas if we can invest the time and expertise that we have within the organization on improving our catalogue records and and, um, enhancing our foundational knowledge of what we've got and there it is what we're searching for in this series on the hidden constellation of digital labor in museums a surfacing of the hidden labour that takes place in the museum that has always taken place, but which now requires key digital skills in the expertise involved in improving catalogue records and enhancing foundational knowledge if we are to future-proof the museum. It requires intellectual labour, yes, but also digital labour and a new kind of working laterally, collaboratively across the museum. 
I think one of the things that we've noticed through One Collection is the extent to which the hierarchy of what's in the museum and what's on display, bearing in mind it's about you know, 3 to 5% on display and the rest is in store, we've created heroes and icons through relatively arbitrary choices of what went on display in some of our um, major galleries. And looking afresh at the bulk of what we have, we will be creating new heroes and icons of the future, or at least giving us, um, ensuring that we're better equipped when it comes to thinking about what we want to display, either online or in, in person, We've got so many more avenues to, um, to go down. Before we move on, I want to suggest that one collection can be recognised as an example of systems thinking in action. According to David Peter Stroh, systems thinking is the ability to understand an interconnected set of elements in a coherently organised way to achieve a desired purpose. For Science Museum Group, The broader intention was to better integrate digital within the collection in strategic ways to support its future through digitising the collection, enabling digital content creation, as well as improving discoverability and connectivity across the museums in the group. What we have seen through this example is precisely what is advocated by systems theorists. The project has motivated people to change, catalyzed opportunities for collaboration focused people to work on a few coordinated changes over time to achieve system-wide impacts and stimulated continuous learning. We've looked at how Science Museum Group uses digital, or at least how it hopes to use it soon, and how it manages digital. What about how it understands digital? By this I mean the ways in which the museum encounters and learns about digital practice and culture, and, specifically, how it incorporates new, emergent forms of digital culture within its collection. One of the most exciting projects I came across was a meme-collecting project at the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford, undertaken in 2019 by Dr Aaron Rees, Research Associate at the University of Leeds, with Dr Philip Roberts, former Associate Curator of Photography and now Curator of Photography at the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Here's Aaron and Philip talking about how they went about collecting a meme. We'll start by hearing Aaron. Me and my, uh, one of my supervisors, uh, Helen Graham, um, got in contact with the Science Museum Group um, initially because we were looking for a place to test out collecting from social media. So we met after that and started talking about how we could actually start trying to do some digital collecting that revolved around social media and what that might look like. And I think it was in our first meeting, we were both yeah. like... We like memes. Um, yeah. And yeah, we just went from there, really. I'm the photography curator here, and I look after a collection of about five million photographs. Um, as, a, as a museum, we don't really collect media content. We collect the technologies and the stuff. Um, other than for photographs, because we were founded as a photography museum. We were initially going to be the National Museum of Photography, and then the National Museum of Photography, Film and Television, then the National Media Museum, and then the National Science and Media Museum. And over those years, we've continued to collect photography, but we don't collect digital photography, despite the fact that all photographs are digital now. Um, 
So one of the things I've been thinking about for ages is the ch challenge of what will happen to museum collections and specifically photography collections in the digital photography age. And so I decided this was a good opportunity to see how we did that. And so we said, well, let's just collect a meme. And we picked a photograph because it was easier than picking a graphic content. I could make a case for a photographic meme to the collections board easier than I could something else. Mm -hmm. And we really expected that what we would do is collect it and come up with a really useful, interesting process and then get rejected. Yeah. I, I expected that, the, that what the board would say would be, this is really interesting, this is really good, but we don't have the infrastructure to do it because the Science Museum doesn't have a digital collections management system. Well, it has a kind of, it's got a kind of system for media library, but that's for our commercial images, for like our kind of media assets. We don't have a place to keep collections. So I thought they would say, there's no way to put this, Philip. No. But maybe we, one day we could have a go. And I thought that would be enough for Aaron's research to give him some great PhD data. I really thought that people would just like really attack the proposal and be like, is it an object though? Is it not just data? Is it not archival? And we just dealt with all this and we were like, well, this is how we're going to do it. And everyone's like, great. It's, it is an, it's exciting actually because so the meme we decided to try and collect was the absolute unit meme that the Museum of English Rural Life tweeted. So we chose that one for two reasons. One, as Philip said, it was a photograph. It was a physical photograph that got digitised, then was put on social media, turned into a meme, or, or it was associated with an existing meme concept, which is the absolute unit, and it just proliferated. So it just told this really interesting story about photography and the technology and how social media changes that and how you can create a new kind of thing, which is a meme from a physical photograph that's in an archive. Um, and also we thought that working directly with a museum to try and collect the meme as a concept um, might allow for a little bit more flexibility and allow for some kind of difficult conversations for the museum we were trying to collect it from and for us and allow for those kind of in-depth museological questions to be touched on if we wanted to. So those are the two kind of reasons that we kind of thought of for ourselves why this meme was going to be the right one. Mm -hmm. And then when we actually collected it, it wasn't just a case of collecting a, a JPEG or anything. We, we tried to, we pushed the concept of what an object was in the museum. So I think that's what was really exciting about it. We, we made this kind of three-part or four-part object made up of a web recorder file, which is a web archive file of JPEG images of data in CSV format. Mm -hmm. A meme is not the, it's not the image itself, it's the act of it going viral. So it's something that you get tweeted, then it's just a tweet, but when it proliferates and gets responses and gets picked up and carries, that's what makes it mimetic. Um, and so the idea of us collecting it is not just collecting an image. The Museum of English Rural Life have got that image. We don't need to collect that. We need to collect something that captures the act of it going viral, of it becoming a meme. Which yeah. means we needed the image and the text, we needed the Twitter interface, we needed the replies, we needed some other memes getting created in response to it, we needed a kind of active communication taking place on social media. Yeah, that's exactly, that's perfect. In essence, we were leading the conversation because most of the, most of the staff 
Um, so the collections board is made up of our kind of core collections team. So it's all of the, the subject curators plus our collections team. And everyone is very, very skilled, very, very knowledgeable. Um, but no one there is an expert in digital culture. And the issue with the meme is that normally our collections care colleagues would ask us, they would like properly grill us on where is this going to go, what's its, is, is it like hazard free, what's its condition, we done a condition assessment, every blah, blah, blah. But basically our conservator disavowed um, responsibility for it yeah. because it's not a conservation matter, because it's not a material collection. Um, and because we don't have an infrastructure for collecting and preserving digital content already, it meant that there is no authority in the museum mm. to oversee digital. Although there was no, we now have a digital preservation manager who started like a fortnight ago. But at the time, we were getting this through in the absence of someone who really understood the process. Philip is talking about Samaya Langley, the group's new digital preservation manager, who you'll be hearing from in the later episode. What I find most compelling about Aaron and Philip's project to collect a meme is that it required new forms of digital labour in the museum, which had not had to exist previously. There was no precedent for collecting this form of digital culture within existing museum infrastructure. Their endeavour was genuinely new territory for the group. The only way Aaron and Philip could get this to happen was by building on, or remixing, as we'll hear Aaron call it shortly, previous models of collecting as they went along. This kind of experimentalism reminds me of something Dave Patton, head of New Media, said about coming of age in the 1970s and the use of early computers at the Science Museum. It's like, if you really put your mind to it, anything is possible and you can really do it and you don't need to do the things in the way they've been done before... You can rethink all of those things. And again, that was a really exciting time for technology where you know, there was this new platform, the personal computer, which was cheap enough for individuals to afford. Um, you, you look back at lots of technologies. When there's a new technology, what people start doing is they look for existing models of use. So the, the you know, early computer programs were like books. You know, it's like it's it's a there's a chapter and there's a page and on the page there's some text and there might be an image and, and, and you know that's a, that's a kind of reasonable model to go and people understand how books work so you kind of you know mm-hmm. visitors might understand how the computer works but it doesn't play to the strengths of a computer and then gradually you kind of you look for other models and, and you know so you start to borrow from television and from film and eventually it becomes a thing in its own right I wanted to put this clip from Dave alongside Aaron and Philip's discussion because I think it reveals something significant about how new digital technologies first enter the museum space. Whether it's 1979 or 2019, digital innovation requires new forms of digital labour and digital literacy. While this can be exciting, it's not always easy and can conflict with the museum's processes. Here's Aaron talking through how they helped evolve a process for collecting the museum's first meme. We created a process. So one, I think one of the reasons why we got the, the meme through collection board so well as well, we did take it there four times. We were very consultative. We had a group, an informal group of kind of... Um, Informal, what did I call it my PhD? An informal group of people we thought should be involved. There was also an element in the, in the collection board meetings, there were people who were like, we've been told so long that we're going to get digital preservation when we haven't. We've been told that we can collect digital for so long, but we haven't been able to. 
just collect it. We're going to have to force someone's yeah. hand. And there was, a, there was a feeling of that, I sense. Yeah. Well, that was, that was always the process. That's what you brought as the thing you wanted to do in the first place, was to find a process that wouldn't work, but to try and map it onto the existing processes that, exist, that are in the museum for physical objects and archives and the things that we already do. So the objective to took was that you wanted to test the existing collecting procedures to see if they could accommodate yeah. digital. And mostly they were pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we ended up doing was kind of shifting things slightly. So I call it remixing in my work. So remixing the processes, just slightly tweaking the wording or just reorientating the way in which we think about things. So one of my favourite things that we managed to get through at the end was this idea of when you collect an image, a digital image, the idea is you collect the best possible quality one. But we argued that that would be inauthentic for the Twitter meme. Mm -hmm. We wanted to collect the tiny image that you find on Twitter because that's mm -hmm. what the meme was. To collect this massive tiff of the sheep yeah. would not be what we were trying we were to achieve. As well. We were offered it, yeah. Um, I was <laughs> like, no, that's not that's not the meme. That's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with an image that's been uploaded on Twitter and treated with some funny wording. Um, mm -hmm. So to kind of get that uh, past central registration, because we went up to the head of registration for that conversation. Mm. Um, because when you remix, you're not you're not throwing things out. You're not. It's not iconoclastic. We're not like throwing out the institution. We're taking processes that we know work, um, but don't quite work for this element of culture that we're trying to collect. So we're shifting. We're adapting. Uh, we're not creating new processes from scratch. We're just making tweaks or remixes. Um, we knew what we wanted to achieve. We knew that it was possible. We just didn't know the exact process to do it. But we knew how to ask the questions to get what we needed from an expert outside the field. We didn't need that in-house necessarily. And this is one of the key outputs of the project. Obviously, the, the core output was the mean ending up in the national collections. Um, but the other is a methodology for collecting content from social media. Because when a lot of places, a lot of, like we're not the only museum interested in collecting born digital images. It's been happening for a good sort of 15, 20 years now. But nearly everybody gets their digital content sent in from either an artist or kind of passed to them. So some of the other projects that have been collecting um, digital images have been getting them kind of crowdsourced and sent in that way. Mm -hmm. What's unique and interesting about this process is we've caught a meme in the wild. We've taken it from its actual context. Yeah. That's where memes live. If you create a digital work and give it to me, it's not the same as me finding it online and documenting it as it exists online. We talked about it being a capture of a meme in a point of time. That meme's going to continue to have a life. It's going to continue to get more likes, more retweets. More people will use it. It may have a, a second wind or a third wind, um, but that so the museum does not own that meme concept. It doesn't. It, it, when the museum acquires things, it likes to claim full ownership of them, but it can't do that with a meme. So it kind of really challenges that fundamental notion of ownership in mm. um, in museum collecting.
The meme collecting project pushed the group to think deeper and with more intention about how it collects objects that have been born in a virtual world rather than a physical one. With that came a new acknowledgement of the socio-cultural significance of digital-first ephemera for their audiences and their audiences to come. It also forced the museum to confront in a different way an issue that has come to dominate museum discourse more than ever in recent years, the issue of ownership. We only have control over the individual files that sit within the museum's repository. We don't have any control over this meme as a yeah. concept. So we couldn't, we couldn't sell it, but we can display it. Yeah, and we've had permission from the mill yes. to display it. The terms of the Twitter thing, of, of, of collecting the meme, are very similar to a lot of other um, terms that we have. The, the difficult thing about it for a lot of people is, cause it, is that it's been conceptually confusing because it is not a physical... There is no object. So when you talk about the object, it's something that we have effectively made up. We've kind of... We've captured it and conjured it out of the air and controlled the shape of what this object is. We are interested so much in the concept of the absolute unit. We are interested in the technology of a meme, the concept yeah. of a meme. So the, the curatorial inf- influence that brought to the object really changed what the nature of the object was. It doesn't feel like too much of a leap to suggest that the meme-collecting project pushed the museum to think differently about what could be possible in terms of new models of ownership, about what it means to collect a thing. If this is the case... Imagine what this could mean if we applied the principle of remixing to other kinds of contemporary collection issues. When I spoke with Aaron and Philip, there was lots of discussion about the complexities of digital copyright that I can't include here, but are worth learning about, because these issues ultimately prompt the need for alternative approaches to the ownership of new and emerging objects. Aaron has a fantastic article available online which helps understand this better, I'll put the link in the blurb for this episode. What is important is that collecting Merle's absolute unit meme was part of a wave of change, not the catalyst. We have an active change in the sense that we have initiated a digital collecting programme in, in the Science Museum. And we don't have a digital infrastructure in place to manage that, but we still have the meme. Um, mm. We actually got the object before we had the store to put the object in. And the reason we did that was because we knew if we had it, we'd have to do it. So by getting it accessioned, which was, you know, a little bit naughty of us, by getting it accessioned, it means that the museum has a legal responsibility to this object, which means that they have to bring in a digital asset management system to store it. They are doing that now. Um, However, they're not doing that because we did this. We gave them a little bit of a kick and we accelerated the process by showing how important it was to do it now. But digital collecting has been on the whole sector's radar for a long time. Even the places that are doing nothing are aware of the need to move into collecting digitally. And now that that's happened, it's done a kind of domino effect in that people are coming to me to say, hey, I'm thinking of collecting this TikTok thing. How do I do it? And I can say, well, this is what we did. Yeah. And so other people are starting to see that it's a possibility. And from here, this is how the whole organisation becomes a digital collecting organisation, hopefully with a digital asset management system in place to manage it. This conversation in Bradford emphasised that emergent forms of digital culture can shift in subtle ways the infrastructure and processes of a museum, 
revealing the need for new forms of digital skills whilst challenging pre-existing, often hierarchical understandings of what kinds of contemporary everyday culture it is important to preserve. Perhaps most relevantly, the new forms of digital labour required in the meme-collecting exercise opened up the notion of science capital and pushed at what it could be if the museum incorporated alternative ownership and collecting models within its purview. Does science capital gain a new extra meaning in the museum if it incorporates how individuals and society en masse are generating their own science capital through activity on social media? I'm going to let Philip swoop in here. The absolute unit was one to just kind of get us moving to show that it could be done. But hypothetically, and this is something I'm really, really interested in the future, is to look at how we could do like viral images of climate change. So when a bushfire happens and loads of people photograph it, we can go and farm all of that stuff and then create a curated set of things relating to a specific subject, which is climate change images going viral. Or if some particular political event happens and loads of people make loads of esoterical memes and artworks about it, we could farm them and create a curated cluster of things that will not just be about recording the memes, but about recording some intellectual relationship that all of the memes have with each other, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it being curated means that we can go deeper than the internet is already going because we'll never match its breadth. But it is potentially transformative for how we think about images like across the museum. This is what, this is what I'm interested in. Like I, I like memes and I like digital digital photographs they're interesting but I'm kind of principally this is about what the status of photographs is across media so what digital photographs do is by sheer weight of numbers is they make all photographs normal the vast 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 majority of all photographs in the world now are taken on people's phones as random snaps of stuff Um, if you're collecting digital photography you cannot focus on prestige photography and famous artists. You cannot be looking at the Warhols and the Mapplethorpes. Digital culture can stretch established processes in museums in progressive, exciting ways. The idea that digital challenges ideas of high and low art is not new, nor is the supposition that it helps anyone participate in and create culture. A great reference for this is David Gauntlet, who asserted that platforms like YouTube encourage users to be creative in whatever way they choose, providing not only a framework for participation, but also a new global community amongst everyday users. What I'm trying to say is, the internet can enable anyone to generate their own science capital, and that, as I understand Philip, should be embraced in the collecting practices of our science and technology museums. And this means we need to forge new digital literacy in our curatorial teams. John Stack helps fill in the gaps around what kinds of skills are required. I think one of these interesting questions around the curatorial is if you think about, well, what's a curator in the 21st century? I think it's a really interesting question. Right now, it feels like we need to pair them up with content producers, yeah. with we need to have audience insight into our digital audiences in a much more sophisticated way. We need to mm-hmm. measure not just reach, because that chart we were just looking at is really just a reach chart. Mm-hmm. We need to measure impact too. Okay. 
and so that we can demonstrate what, what impact we're having. And that could be all kinds of different, measuring different kinds of ways, but that then, and then we need to, the curators to actually feel like, yes, digital is one of the things that I do. Yeah. So there's this, there's this both the, the kind of, the digital moving up the museum agenda, being something boards talk about, mm-hmm. and digital leadership roles moving up the museum hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Like I'm one of like a handful of digital directors in the museum mm-hmm. sector in the UK, and probably mm-hmm. in the world. Uh, and you didn't see that ten years ago. It mm. was and twenty years ago. It was a bunch of scruffy people in the basement. They kept the website going, type thing. <laughs> but within the yeah. digital teams, you're seeing much more specialism. You're seeing we've got the organisation, but I think this blended roles thing is much more interesting because what yeah. that says is it's starting to bleed out of the organisation into curatorial and learning and other areas. And so mm. where it's been adopted, where the digital has kind of moved rapidly beyond, let's say, a core digital team, in, we, adopting a kind of hub-and-spoke model with a mm-hmm. small centralised digital team doing a bunch of stuff, but lots of people doing digital around the organisation. Where it's slower, or where, where we're really thinking about it a lot now, is, this, is the curatorial, because there, mm-hmm. that's where the, yeah. the, the real core mission delivery around the collection and engaging audiences with that feels like the, the next big step. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine a future in which there is a kind of curator who doesn't think twice about this. Yeah. It's like in the 1950s, someone saying to a curator, will you, will you go on the radio and talk about, on the wireless, and talk about your... That's so true. And they'd yeah. probably say, well, no, no, it's not what, it's not what, mm. it's not what a curator does. But, but now, they will go on media training. Yeah. So it's actually, they're quite good at, like, mm. talking to camera. Mm. And so there's, there's quite a lot of, sort of like feeling your way through how, what is the best way of adopting these changes. All the people I've spoken to in this episode have helped me see that because of technological change, new digitally engaged curators are needed in sites where learning concepts such as science capital are on the agenda. This is for two reasons to enable the collection of new dynamic forms of digital culture, forms of culture which are still proliferating, as Aaron and Philip say. Second, to be open to the agency of audiences generating their own science capital and figuring out how best to represent that within the museum. This brings me to my final example of new digital labour at Science Museum Group, where I want to turn to how staff create with digital how they are building active, imaginative relationships with their technology, assets and contents to create greater equity in science education. A great example of this comes in the form of Heritage Connector, a 22-month research project funded by Arts and Humanities Research Councils Towards a National Collection initiative, which brought together academics, developers and museum practitioners from Science Museum Group, the V&A and the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. Heritage Connector, which ended in December 2021, used data analysis approaches to build links at scale between catalogues, published material and wikidata for new forms of research and access. 
Here's a reminder of what Dr Tim Boone, who we heard from in the first episode, said about the importance of such investigations for the museum. A suspicious person, superstitious person might think, well, you're going to destroy the historian's craft if you automate it. But it seems to me that's not the case at all. What it will, ha- what it will do is, if it works, is to bring more sources into purview than you could ever have imagined. And in good empirical work, new data change the questions you can ask. John Stack, who led the project, describes how the process of Heritage Connector built on the work of the One Collection initiative that we've already heard about. Where we started was the catalogue is patchy mm-hmm. and thin. Okay. And our current move from Blythe House is a rapid digitisation project which focuses on breadth rather than depth. So there are new catalogue entries going in, but they're not big 500-word descriptions. They're mostly short couple of sentences, paragraph at, at best, and then, just, and then some spot, deeper dives. Um, so, and then there are controlled lists or vocabularies in the collection system, but they're kind of patchily applied as well. So, and the reason why that's a challenge is controlled lists is something that computers understand really well. So when you put them online and you can say, click on everything that refers to the Royal Society, if you have a list that says, references Royal Society, and it's consistently applied across the whole collection, you can click on it. And so currently, what you get online is... Therefore, because the collection is quite patchy, the online interface is quite patchy. So what we looked at in Heritage Connector was how do you kind of mine what's there to um, kind of transform discovery and exploration. So what we've done is to, to kind of run through the whole collection using a bunch of different machine learning techniques to build what's called a knowledge graph, but think of it as like an index, mm-hmm. which foregoes the kind of structure of the um, collection catalogue, but which also includes references to Wikidata and therefore Wikipedia, and also includes references to some but not all of the VNA's collection. And to do that in such a way, uh, to do it at scale. So to do it, not to, to do it across to the, to the point where we have like millions of kind of links and data points. And to worry somewhat, but not overly, about some false positives in there. Because thinking that if we can get, if we can create this index, which has some sketchiness, but which has a lot of things that we didn't have before, you could start to do different kinds of things with it, which would be completely impossible otherwise. We've, we've got this kind of data explorer. We're going to build widgets into the pages that, as you go to a collection page, you'll, it will just pull up this information generated by machine. So the idea is you're kind of, your mileage may vary, but you'll almost certainly discover things that you haven't found before. So one of the things that we've discovered is... The related, we've got a related content feature on our collection website. The things that the machine learning 
pushers related content are so, so much better than the ones that were done in some other simpler thing, which just looks at categories and dates and other things. Mm-hmm. Um, that mm-hmm. there are link, it, it can go through descriptive text, and if it just mentions places or events or companies or people in the descriptive text, suddenly all those things effectively become links. Right. And was this where it works a lot better for people than it does for objects? Uh, It's much better on people when it comes to linking to Wikipedia, because most of the objects don't have a reference in Wikipedia and Wikidata. So certain things do, but a key, a random key from the Middle Ages doesn't. But uh, but if it was if it was made a particular foundry, and that foundry is mentioned in the text, that foundry might, and therefore we can build we could build that link. At this point in our conversation, John opened his laptop to show me what the Heritage Connector team describe as a visualization of a knowledge graph, and what looked to me like a huge virtual constellation of green, orange, blue, red, and purple lines and spots on a black screen. That's the only way I can think of describing it. And yes, you guessed it. It impacted me to the extent that it became the inspiration for the name of this podcast. If you hover your mouse over any part of this visualisation, a new object personal place is revealed. Whether that's a balling iron from veterinary medicine, an early Roman cigar box containing 24 oyster shells or the Hunslet Engine Company. This knowledge graph enables new possibilities for serendipitous discovery across science museum groups and V&A's vast collections. New entry points for researchers and visitors to access the collection, macro views of the entire thing, as well as a new form of interface alternative to your regular key search. The Heritage Connector visualisation therefore shows us, in an unparalleled way for museums, how digital can make visible the previously invisible and build connections across objects, people and places impossible to construct in one historian's lifetime. More cynically, perhaps, it recalled to me something the feminist scholar Donna Haraway said in 1988 when she described the way new visualising technologies are without apparent limit and that, and I quote, vision in this technological feast becomes unregulated gluttony, a kind of god trick. The work of projects like Heritage Connector help pave a future for the museum and its collection. If the museum seeks to engage and entertain its audiences while fulfilling the mission to promote science capital, then visualisations such as this enable the kind of anarchic watching which now typifies streaming culture, discussed earlier in this episode. If you wanted to like describe it in one sentence, suddenly you've got like a, a map of the collection generated by machine learning. So it's a kind of different way of trying to think about like how might you explore and discover collections in ways that you hadn't previously. Yeah, and I think one, one of the things that's become clear about it is actually these, these very short descriptions that include keywords and mentions of things. A curator might feel like, I'm not really doing this object justice. Mm-hmm. The answer is, you totally are. Because even a passing reference to something can be enough yeah. to use a machine learning to build on a multitude of links to other places. Really so, so long descriptions are obviously better than short descriptions, but short descriptions are still incredibly valuable. The knowledge graph generated through Heritage Connector relies on the importance of a certain kind of, now digital, labour 
associated with labelling and documentation undertaken by curatorial and collections management teams. For Jack Kirby, projects such as this not only enable a less rigid attitude to established practices, but challenge, in an important way, authorities of expertise, not only within the museum, but within our world. So the idea, what it does is it releases you from the idea of perfection, in a sense, because Heritage Mm. Connector is making automated connections and it's going, you know what, not every one of these will be perfect, Mm -hmm. so come to it with that caveat. Mm -hmm. And that makes people uncomfortable to start off with, Mm. because the idea is that the museum has the catalogue and it is the rail, the source of truth, um, and so on. Now, actually, museum catalogues evolve over time, interpretations of objects change. It's rarely static, but it does have an authority. So by making the connections automatically to other, connect- other places, other collections, whatever, you take away some of that perceived, although possibly um, flawed, authority. Mm-hmm. That's uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and for curators, potentially. Um, However, it's also liberating, because no longer do you need to aim for that perfection. It's a bit, you know, if if you search something on Google, you don't expect every single result it returns to be exactly what you're looking for. Um, No. Whereas if people search the museum database... They have an admittedly reasonably higher expectation of it returning things that are very relevant. Mm. But I think you will start to see, because of the way people are using this technologies generally, an acceptance that, that you need to filter. It then, however, and this is an important point, becomes mm-hmm. important that we train people in, um, that we educate people in using the internet, because it's the, the idea that everything you find on the internet is of equal value and truth that is part of the problem. Mm. If you train people with the skills that historians get taught with, which is questioning sources, who's saying this, why they're saying it, um, all these kind of things, then then actually that equips them quite well for life because it means they can be um, critical of, of things that they find. And that actually is sort of forced upon us anyway by mm. the world of social media and um, mm-hmm. misinformation about vaccines and everything else. It calls for a critical questioning approach that, that gets to the truth. But that's a massive societal shift. So there's a risk for museums that they lose authority by engaging in these kind of experiments mm. and connecting stuff up. Mm-hmm. There's a win in that they, they maybe actually that authority was always never quite there anyway and it's liberating to be freed from it and there's a massive win intellectually because you can make connections at scale that it would have taken you years in archives to make Um, so um, we we don't know exactly how it will work out but I think we have to try In this episode, we have explored how the Science Museum Group uses, manages, understands and creates with digital, and the new kinds of digital labour that these activities have surfaced and instilled across the organisation. It has been described how these new digital activities, and the kinds of skills that they require, are disrupting, reorganising and progressing 
the organisation's core priority to promote science capital. Technology-driven activities such as the Collecting Meme project are splitting open previous understandings of the role of the visitor within STEM heritage and the generation of STEM culture, and proposing a different, more radically democratic form of inclusion to come. For me, most interesting is the way that all these digitally focused projects are morphing what it means to work in a science and technology museum, and in the same motion, heralding a new kind of what academic Ros Gill would call labouring subjectivity within the museum space. New digital labour in the museum is reshaping the key components of an organisation such as Science Museum Group, the identity of its staff, the role and agency of its audiences, and the potential of the term science capital. Most notably, it is bringing to the fore an entirely new kind of curation, and curators who feel the need to be, more than ever, arbiters of truth and knowledge in a world participating en masse, responding to new kinds of audiences who want to participate and be represented in different ways. All this pushes dramatically at the museum's ability to enable science equity. It feels like the next phase is just to really focus in on a small number of things that mm -hmm. deliver impact and to make it feel more like a kind of programme of normal activity and less like a, yet another project for the poor curators who have got dozens of other things to do. Thank you for listening. See you here next time on The Hidden Constellation, where we'll be considering some of the hidden kinds of labour involved in these digital projects. You've been listening to The Hidden Constellation, presented by me, Dr Sophie Frost. Voice actors are Chris Thorpe-Tracy, Reefa Thorpe-Tracy, Ben Murray and Stephen Orchard. Sound design and editing is by Chris Thorpe-Tracy of Lo-Fi Arts. My thanks go to everyone who participated in this episode, and most of all to the Science Museum Group, for their time and generosity in letting me ask lots of questions for well over a year. This podcast has been created as part of the One by One Research Initiative, led by the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for listening. Don't fly on.